So this week we are in Genesis 3. If you've got your Bible, you can head on there. I'll just introduce where we are in the series. So last week we started this series, which is going to take us up to Easter, called God's Story. And we're just going to have a look at the story of God, and we're allowing it to culminate around the Easter narrative, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So last week we began with In the Beginning, the best place to start of any book, obviously. If you start at the end, then it won't make sense. So in the beginning, last week we saw Genesis 1 and 2. We saw a God who created order from disorder. We saw a world in which there is no need for a Jesus. There is no need for saving because the world as it is in Genesis 1 and 2 is perfect. It's working. When I say perfect, I mean it's in absolutely mint operating order. Now the problem is, of course, uh, you and I have eyes is we have a mind to see things around us, and we know that the world that you and I experience is not like the world we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. So obviously, the author is dreaming, or something happened. And today, we're going to look at that something that happened, and what happened is a snake, a man, a woman, a piece of fruit, and God all got involved, and now we have the world as it is. Not as it should be, but we have the world as it is. And that's what we're going to look at today. So today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. So let's get into it. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty and, uh, than any other animals that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, here we have in verse 1, we have the serpent. Who is this serpent? So, uh, we're going to get to this a little bit later. I want to have a look at um, the devil and Satan. We're going to come back to that at the end of the message. Uh, but for now, in terms of the logic of the text and what's given to us, we don't know who this character is or what its motives are. It's just this crafty creature that's been created. And it does an incredibly great job at starting the conversation because he starts with a misleading question. Did God really say you cannot eat from any tree? Now, that's not true. And this is what Eve says in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. So that's not right what you're saying, silly snake. But God did say this. There's an element of truth. You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle. Do not touch that or you will surely die. So Eve's reply, reply is fair enough. She's come, she's, I don't know how the snake slithers up to her and says, hey, you're not allowed to eat from any tree or any fruit I hear. And Eve says, that's not true. We can eat fruit. What's wrong? Oh, yeah, great point. Yes, please. Thank you, Arno. I left that sheet somewhere else. Where was it at the back here? Ah, oh, cheers. Very good point. Oi. Wait, 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 let's not get ahead of ourselves. All right. Thank you. You almost saw some answers there. Let's not so do that. All right. Thank you very much. Um, where was I? So Eve says, that's not true. We can eat from a tree. We just can't eat from this one tree. Or we cannot. Or we will die is what God says. Verse 4, you will certainly not die. Such confidence, the snake says to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the snake here contradicts God and lies. God has clearly said that if you eat, we see that in uh, chapter 2, you cannot eat from this one tree with the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. And the snake says, that's not true. 
just, it's, you're fine. In fact, God's afraid that if you do eat from the tree, then you're going to become like him, knowing everything, good and evil. And there's sort of a, um, a sadness to what he says there because Eve is already like God in the sense that she's made in his image and she and Adam have been committed, or the woman and the man, she hasn't been named Eve yet, they've been commissioned to work with God in the garden. So it's almost a little bit sad really that the, that the, the, devil, oh, the, sorry, that the serpent lies here and says that you will become like God if you eat from the tree. Because the reality is, is that they already are sharing with God. They already are like God in terms of they share his image and they share work with him to do. So it's just sad that that, that is um, that's the case. So, verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Then both of their eyes were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So here in this uh, verse, in chapter 6, we have three lies which Eve fell for and which we fall for all the time. The three lies are this. It will sustain me, it looks good to me, and I will be better off with it. So in verse 6, it says, The woman saw the fruit of the tree. She saw it was good for food. She saw it was pleasing to the eye. And now that she knew about this whole desiring wisdom, uh, gaining wisdom, she said, oh, I'm going to be in a better position if I have it. And this is three lies that we fall for all the time. It will sustain me. We justify bad decisions because, well, we know we need it anyway, but we just happen to want to take a shortcut to get to it. Uh, we say it very often as the ends justifies the means. But the problem is, when we take shortcuts, it can undermine and cut through our integrity. We can lie, we can cheat, we can steal, we can manipulate, we can gossip, because we know that it will sustain us. We know that that thing that we want, we need. But when we go about getting it in a way which is unhealthy or goes outside of what God has desired, then we end up actually fooling ourselves and getting there in a method which God doesn't want, and it undermines our integrity, and it can also cost us in other ways. Second lie we fall for there is that it looks good to me. Well, why can't I have it if it looks good to me? It's pleasing to the eye, but just because it looks good doesn't mean that it is good, and some of us have stories where what we thought looked good, we finally got and we bit into and realized this is not good for us. Some of us have those stories. And then finally, I will be better off with it. If I can just get my hands on some more money, or maybe if it was just some more education, or a different location, or a new job, or a new spouse, or better friends, if, if I could just get something else, I will be better off with it. And the problem most of the time is that you tend to go where you go, so when you get that new thing, and you think your problems are behind you, you look in the mirror, you're still there, and if you haven't dealt with the underlying issues, you've taken your, your problem with you. So there's are three lies that, um, that Eve fell for, and it's three lies that we fall for. It will sustain me, so I'm going to take a shortcut to get it. It looks good to me. Why wouldn't I want that? Sometimes, just because it looks good doesn't mean that it is good. And I will be better off with it. If I just change, if I can just get more, then I will be better off than I was before. And verse um, 7 is interesting. She took some, ate it, gave some to her husband who was with her. And I like this little graphic here. Adam chilling in the garden while the snake talks. This is fine. Like, I, look, I, I read this, and I just think to myself, come on, Adam. Come on, mate. 
Any, any thoughts you want to share with the group? Anything you want to say and stand up for here? Clearly what is happening is not right and Adam's just sort of there. Doing what? Supervising? I don't know. And then the final part of that, verse 7, the eyes of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And this is actually a really sad part of the story. Because something broke when she ate the fruit, when he ate the fruit, when they had the fruit. Something broke. Before that, they had complete nakedness, complete freedom, and now that innocence is gone. Because before... Um, that relational trust, them being naked before each other, it meant nothing. It just meant that they were before each other as God had created them. But when they took a bite of that ap- of the um, apple, fig, whatever, the, the fruit, suddenly they knew nakedness in a new way, in a more perverse way. And their sexuality and their, their nakedness was something which isn't completely open and relational has now become something which they view differently. And because of that, they had to cover themselves. There was a perversion of sexuality that they are now aware of that wasn't there before. And then verse 8, The man and wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. And the Lord God called to them, Where are you? Now I'm sure when you were growing up, you did something wrong and you knew your parents were going to be home at some point and they were going to discover what you had done. One day, I was jumping on the trampoline with a friend and our brains went, flower. Flower will make this experience better. So we went in, we got all the flower, flowers flying everywhere, jumping up and down, jumping off the, the swing set onto the trampoline. It's just poof, we're just like running around. It's just like, ah, oh, it's hurting my eyes, it doesn't matter, this is amazing. Um, and then you have that moment when you hear the car pull up and you're like, uh-oh. There's got to be some consequences here. I know what flowers used for. Not for this. This is the uh-oh moment. This is the we done messed up moment. They've, they've committed this sin. They realize they're naked and they're there and then suddenly they hear God. And they're like, ooh, accountability's coming. We got to get out of here. So they hid. And the Lord God said to the man, where are you? Now, I don't believe that this is a physical question. I believe this is more of a relational question. Because where are you? He's the one that made everything. He's the one that knows everything. So he probably knew where Adam was. And he's probably aware of the situation. Almost like a parent who has seen what's happened, knows something wrong. And rather than go in there and says, how dare you have, you walk in calmly and go, Anything you want to tell me? It's almost like what's happening here. Where are you? It's a, it's a relational question. And I think his answer matters quite a lot. The man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. There was fear. Because I was naked. So I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat. Now, this question here, this question here is what I think is the first real test of humanity. So obviously, when the snake is talking to the woman and they're having that conversation, that is a test for the man and the woman. Are you going to live within the bounds that God has created? 
And do they pass that test? No, they fail that test. But then here is the first one, is the, the thing that I see as much more important. So that happened. The mistake has happened. They've fallen for the trick. But what is their response going to be when they return to the one who is in charge of it all? What, is, what are they going to say? So let's see what happens. The man said, Lord, this is all my fault. I was sitting there and I should have said something, but I was too scared. The woman said, no, it's my fault. I shouldn't have listened to the snake. And the snake said to them, I just want to be like you. Can I be part of the gang? And God said, group hug. Let's start again. Now, that's not what happens in the story, unfortunately. This is what happened. The man said, the woman You put her here with me. I didn't ask for her to be here. You put her here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I had no choice. She is the one to blame. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And she goes, the serpent deceived me and I ate the fruit. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Can they take responsibility? That is the question. See, they messed up. And they knew there were going to be some consequences for that. God came to them and said, what's happening here? And they had a moment there, which we don't know how the story would have gone because it didn't play out this way. They had a moment there to stand up, stand tall, and to take responsibility for the decision that they made. And they couldn't do it. If one of them had just said it was my fault, I wonder how the story would have gone. But what they did do when they got caught is what many of us do when we get caught in doing something that we shouldn't be doing. We look for anyone or anything to blame for the situation that we may have acted ourselves into. This week, I've got two stories for you. The first one is I was driving into Azalea's school to go and pick her up. And uh, I drive the very stylish and very cool and well sought after IMAX. It's uh, it's it's an awesome car. Um, everyone wants to be like me. So I'm driving in the IMAX and it's a big car. And so I pull into the bay and it's tight. It's really tight fit. I pull in. I'm like, oh, it's not straight. If it's not straight, I can't park. So I reverse out. And as I'm as I'm pulling it around, my mirror hits the mirror of the car next to me. And this isn't your shopping center situation where you can just bolt. This is a school. They know me. Not that I would ever bolt in that situation. I wind down my window and I'm like, I'm sorry. But can I tell you what happened between me knocking, pulling up, winding down my window and apologizing? In a split second, my brain immediately said, that guy shouldn't have parked with his mirror over the line. And his mirror was over the line. Now, I'm the clown that was driving. I'm the one that hit him, but my brain immediately went to, well, if his mirror wasn't over the line, I wouldn't have hit him. And I had to stop and go, whoa, 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 whoa. You're the one driving. You need to say sorry. I said sorry. We uh, a beautifully awkward moment. Uh, I apologize, and he's looking a bit tense, and I'm looking like a bit like, I'm so sorry. And then the kids recognize each other, and it's like, hey, hey, and it's like, oh, And we look at each other, we know what we have to do, and we're like, it's okay, it's okay, be friends. (laughs) Yeah, friends, everyone's friends, children, it's fine. (laughs) 
But in a second, I thought to myself, I'm just going to, I'm going to blame him for that, but I had to, I know better. And the other story was this morning. Um, Zoel, if you haven't recognized, is rocking a really cool uh, mark here. Um, she was running to go outside, which I first said, don't go outside because we're going to watch a bit of planes. And she wanted to go outside and show me something. And I said, can we just stay inside? I've got to go to church soon. And then as she was coming towards me, I start closing the door. She starts running. I'm like, okay, okay, slow down. And then I start to open the door and she trips Face plans, and it's one of those things where as I slid open the door, it perfectly met so that her head hit the corner of the sliding door. And I felt awful. And I was just like, why couldn't it just have stayed more closed or been more open and she would have been absolutely fine? And you know, before I thought about my role in it, the first thing I thought was, I told my nail those shoes were too small. <laughs> she wouldn't have tripped if she wasn't wearing those shoes. And then my second thought very quickly was, and if Zoel wasn't running because I told her no, it would have been fine. But I had to stop and go, no, no, no. It's an accident. It's fine. No one's to blame. It was just a really, had she just run and been normal, she would have got to the door, <clears throat> to the door and run outside. All is fine. But I had to take a second and I had to get down. And of course, she's crying. So I give her a big hug. And Zoel's a bit more of an individualistic person. So she, of course, wanted to go and stomp it out outside. So I gave her a hug, put it down, let her do a little elephant stomp. And she came back. All was okay. But isn't it funny? When we do something wrong, we look around and we go, but it's not really all my fault. Sometimes we look around and we go, well, it's the environment or the workplace that's the reason I'm doing this. Sometimes we look at our friends and say, if I didn't have these friends. Sometimes we look at our parents and say, if my parents didn't raise me this way or if it's their fault this is happening. Sometimes we go, oh, it's not my fault, it's my partner's fault. Or sometimes we go, it's my boss's fault. But it's never fully our fault. But as we mature, we learn to take responsibility for our part in the problem because we learn over time no matter how small our responsibility needs to be taken in this situation, we recognize that it is a lot easier to face the issue than to run away. Because even when we run away from taking responsibility, it costs us something somewhere. It might cost us a bit of our integrity. It might cost us some relational trust or a friendship. It could cost us financially. Or maybe it can cost us by forming a reputation that we don't want. But when we don't take responsibility for our part in the issue, no matter how small it is, it costs us something. And for Adam and Eve, it costed them this, the world as it is now. So we don't know what would have happened if they'd taken responsibility, but we know what happened because they didn't. Verse 14. So God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you'll be cursed amongst, above all livestock and wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly, you'll eat dust for the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the serpent will be crushed, but the serpent will also strike the, uh, the offspring of the woman. To the woman he said, I'll, let your child, I'll make child, uh, pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will lord it over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate fruit from the tree, which I commanded you not to, you must not, I command you not to eat it. The ground is cursed. 
painful toil and thistles for you, and you'll eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat food until you return from the ground. Since you were created from dust, you will return to dust. So here we have the consequence for their actions. That beautiful world which God created in Genesis 1 and 2, where there was no pain, there was no distortion, where life was going to be working with God in harmony, ruling over creation together, has now become distorted and twisted. There is pain. There is relational disparity. There is an imbalance between man and woman. There is the world is just not going to work how it was meant to work anymore. And humanity is now going to have a different vision for how the world should be ruled over than what God wants the world to be ruled over. So verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve. Sorry, here they're named before it's all man and woman. Because she would be the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, this is the first sacrifice we have in the Bible. So later on, sacrifices become a big part of the story through the Old Testament. It's about making sure that the, the sin and blame that is on one individual is passed on to the animal so that that person can become blameless before God. Um, and then that gets eradicated when we get to Jesus, or technically when the, second, when the temple burns down. But when we get to Jesus, it gets fully eradicated. Um, and this here is the first sacrifice where an animal has to die for the sin of humanity. The humans are clothed in their garment, yeah, as a, um, a garment of their skin. It's the first sacrifice. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out and take from the tree of life and live forever. God recognizes that if we live forever, we're going to make a really big mess of everything. So what does he do? He drove them out, and he placed cherubim and a flaming sword which flashed back and forth. That would be interesting to see. And it guarded the tree of life. So God basically put up some security system and said, you're not coming back in, guys. So it's quite a wild ride. That beautiful image we had of last week, Genesis 1 and 2, wasn't it nice to live there for just a second? Everything just as it should be. Peace, harmony, working together. And now we have the world as it is, distorted, imbalanced, not as it should have been. So where do we go here for the story of humanity? So last week, we didn't need Jesus. This week, we need Jesus. Humanity and God now have different visions for the world. There is no longer alignment. There's relational distance. And so that needs to change. God designed the whole system wanting to be in relationship with us. And now that that has been broken and now that has been distorted, there is now a gap between us and him. And this is where we need Jesus to come in. Because where humanity couldn't take responsibility for their wrongdoing, Jesus steps in and while committing no wrongdoing, takes responsibility on behalf of all of humanity. And he takes that on his shoulders and he takes that to the cross. He doesn't have to do it, but he wants to do it so that we can be restored to how it was in the beginning. But before we get to the story of Jesus, there's a lot more that happens and God actually reaches out and wants to connect with humanity again. And we're going to pick up on that story next week with a guy called Abram. So uh, now as we finish off our time together, I want to have a quick look at the serpent and Satan. This is a fun topic, which everyone really wants to, yeah? 
to chat about the devil. All right, so I think it's important to talk about um, the devil or Satan. Oh, yeah, here we go, side quest, serpent, devil, Satan. I think it's important as a church that we recognize and talk about evil forces and the devil. And what I want to do very quickly is to give us a bit of an overview about how this serpent in Genesis 3 sort of evolved to become um, Satan. Because in Genesis 3, we're not given that as information, but we find that out later on. And it's important to discuss this sort of stuff because we don't always talk about it in church. So, the devil. There are two views when it comes to viewing evil and Satan, which we want to avoid as much as we can. The first view is this. Doesn't exist. Things just happen. Life is the way it is. There's no such thing as evil forces at work. We don't want to live in that space over there because there's a lot the Bible has to say about spiritual warfare. There's a lot that the Bible has to say about the devil and the the prince of this world and the prince of darkness. And Jesus even mentions him. So if we're going to be following Jesus, we've got to recognize he talks about him. So live over here is unrealistic to hold a faith view and just say, doesn't exist, everything's okay, or it's just bad luck. Life is the way it is. Let's avoid that space. The other space we want to avoid is that the devil is everywhere. And the reason you missed out on that parking spot, the reason you were late to church, the reason that you made that bad decision is his fault. The devil is everywhere. Let's avoid this space as much as we can. Because unfortunately, both spaces sort of neglect the work of God. Because if you live over here and go, doesn't exist, there's no such thing as evil forces, well, that doesn't balance with what we see in Scripture, and that doesn't balance with our experience as humanity, and doesn't balance with our tradition within the Baptist movement and with many other movements as well. It just doesn't balance with holding faith and going, it doesn't exist. But if you live over here, you're going to just like blame away your troubles. It's not my fault that happened. The devil's out to get me. It's not my fault that happened. That's his fault, you know. And instead of maybe growing from some things and maybe learning from some experiences, we just go, it's not me. I'm a child of God. Everything's fine. It's the devil's fault. I'm just going to keep going. Let's avoid that space as well. I think both spaces discredit the work of the devil in the world and it sort of undercuts God because I don't know about you, But things I thought the devil did, I realized was actually testing so that I could grow in my character and reliance on Jesus. And there's things that happen in the world, that is just bad luck. And I've been around people who were upset that they didn't get their parking spot because the devil was out to get them. It's just an intense environment. Let's avoid this space if we can. Let's avoid this space. And we've got to come to the middle. We've got to recognize that the devil is real that the forces of evil are in the world, but we hold to the fact that Jesus wins the victory and he's the one who is in control of it all. Amen? So let's have a look at what happens here. So in the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, we have a serpent. It doesn't say anything about devil or Satan. It just says a serpent. We're ambiguous to its influence. Then fast forward, we get the New Testament happen, and we have Revelation chapter 12, and that's the place where it mentions the great serpent in the beginning, and that's the link back to, um, back to the devil there. Now, my notes are a little... Just two seconds. I'm just going to do that. When Josh was writing this, Josh did not have everything in order. blame Josh. It's It's not the devil at work, it's Josh. All right, okay. Let's try and keep this coherent. 
So at the beginning, we just don't know what's happening with the serpent, ambiguous character. The word there is not used for Satan or devil or anything because at the time when the Old Testament is written, the Hebraic authors don't really have a concept yet fully that there is good and bad. Good and bad come from God. When we read about, in the Old Testament perspective, this role of Satan, we read it in our Bibles as Satan, or it's actually just a term for accuser. And in its proper role, the accuser is part of God's divine counsel that actually is sort of like the lawyer to go and sort of make sure that the, uh, make sure that the argument's watertight. So when you read in Job that there's this conversation between God and the Satan, or the Satan, it's not capital S, it's just the role of an accuser. Look at Job, isn't he amazing? The accuser steps forward and says, actually, he's only amazing because of this. And then this debate happens and then the rest of Job plays out. The Satan or a Satan can also be an angel or a worker of the Lord because we see in Numbers 22, Balaam's walking with his donkey. The donkey doesn't want to go. He yells at the donkey and then it's revealed that there is an angel in the pathway. And that angel is a Satan or an accuser, someone who comes and says to Balaam, how dare you treat this animal this way? Don't you, you're not seeing the real picture of what's going on. So in an Old Testament perspective, when we read Satan, unfortunately sometimes in our New Testament, sorry, in our Bibles we have now, it puts a capital S. It's not a capital S. In an Old Testament sense, it is an accuser. And so in the Old Testament perspective that you have here, you have the accuser who is basically just playing the role of prosecutor. And that role is meant to be a part of what God has going on for some reason because their understanding of the time is that good and bad comes from God because that dualism that we have of good versus bad that doesn't rise for much later but when it does rise up in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament it starts developing towards the end of the Old Testament writings depending when you place them but this Old Testament New Testament there's a time there between these two called the intertestamental periods and dualism takes off There is good because there is a good force. There is bad because there is a bad force. And so when Jesus steps onto the scene, he actually steps into this new way of thinking of there is a good God and bad other force. And he actually reinforces this in three ways. So he reinforces that this is the way that that it is. The first way is through his character and right living. So when Jesus is here on earth, he is the representative of God and he is going around and sure he calls people to account, but his character and the way that he does his ministry is life-giving. It's an example of love. Could you imagine placing Jesus's ethic for how we should live in the Old Testament where there's blood, guts and tears? Jesus would have stepped forth and said, turn the other cheek and the army would have gone straight over the top of him. So obviously there's a bit of a difference as to how, how Jesus is operating and how the Old Testament is operating in different contexts. Um, Jesus teaches, secondly, he teaches about God being the heavenly father and the devil as being the father of this wicked world. Good for God, good comes from God and bad comes from the devil. So Jesus teaches about this. And then thirdly, his temptation is viewed as one of the steps to defeating death. So when Jesus is tempted in... Um, he goes out and the devil says, throw yourself down and um, angels will catch you or you're hungry, just tell them, they'll make you, they'll bring you food. Um, he's tempted in a similar way that Adam and Eve are tempted, but he passes the test because he knows that my source is not from the powers or what I can do. My source comes from being obedient to God, which is where Adam and Eve failed. 
So those are three things that Jesus reinforces this idea that, yeah, dualism and this new way of viewing it is sort of how the world operates. And it actually points a bit to a perversion of the Satan role. So when the Satan or the Satan in the Old Testament is meant to be the accuser, is meant to be part of God's counsel, it's almost meant to be the one that steps forward and is able to help make the case watertight or point out why something is wrong. It's almost like somehow that role has been twisted and that role which he was meant, to, the Satan is meant to be playing is now one which actually brings bad evil and things that are not right. And we read in Revelation 12, there's this great battle in heaven and Satan takes these armies forward and then they're cast down to the earth. When that happens, I don't know. It's all hard to, it's all hard to fit everything together. But the point being that now there is this force of bad and it is pinned on the devil. The devil is part of that. So there's that shift. Do you see what I'm saying between how it used to operate between to now how it is? So it just things, things shift. And I think that that helps us a little bit in being able to embrace the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament because it's really jarring and really hard to justify as a follower of Jesus how God could have condoned what he did in the Old Testament or why the people of God did what they did in the Old Testament. But when you see the trajectory of Scripture... When you see the movement of God from founding his people, which he had to do in the context of the day. He had to found his people in a place of war, famine, of scarcity of resource, of brutality, of seeking retribution. God operated within that context. But then as the story unfolded, God showed us what love is meant to be. Had Jesus rocked up when the patriarchs were still going around, I don't think his message would have got very far. Because it's almost like what happened at the beginning, Jesus sort of came along and he, he twisted or he completely changed. So at the beginning, there was a lot of this idea of seeking justice through retribution. And then Jesus comes along and he says, turn the other cheek. If someone curses you, pray for them. In the beginning, you see the patriarchs, these founders of this God movement, lie, cheat, steal. And then you have Jesus come along and he doesn't do any of that. You have these founders looking to the future generation saying that we need to carry on through a physical presence of population. We need to have children. And then Jesus comes along. He has no children of his own. And he goes on to say, you will become my spiritual children. It's almost like you have these founders who allowed sin to take a hold of their life. They started good. David, Solomon, Abraham. These guys started on the right track. And then they deviated. And then Jesus came through and he's like, I'm not going to let that happen to me. So we see the trajectory of Scripture go from this place of disorder, almost like God's bringing it back to order, and bringing it through a new ethic of love and a new way of operating. And in the beginning, the Satan may have been a role which was meant to operate within the holy council of God, within the divine council. But it's been twisted, it's been not right, and Jesus says, actually... I'm here and I'm going to overcome evil. And I'm going to defeat it in the end. I'm going to be the one that brings it to where it should be. So when it comes to the devil, when it comes to Satan, he does exist. There are forces at play which are happening. Is he responsible for every bad decision you made or anything that's ever happened against you? Probably not. Sometimes we make dumb choices. And we pay the consequences. Sometimes it's on us. Sometimes 
it is the devil. Sometimes there are the cosmic forces that are at play and the spiritual battle that is happening. But our role in that place is to look to Christ, to pray and to trust in him. We want to be people of the middle as much as we can in this and in many other issues. But we need to recognize the evolution of the character of the Satan or the Satan. But we need to take Jesus' word seriously that the devil is real. And that there are forces at work that don't want you to be in relationship with God. And that all happened because a couple of people wanted some fruit. So that brings us to the end of our time in Genesis chapter 3. God's world is a twisted vision of what it should be. Humanity, once aligned with God perfectly, having direct vision for how the world should be looked after, have now been separated for him, and we now want something else from the world. And a lot of the time, it's just take, take, take. So where do we go from here? We're going to pick it up next week with Abraham, or Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you hold the final victory. You are the one who overcomes death. You are the one that overcomes anything that is of evil and that brings around your good, good heart for humanity and that wants to see us with you in the end. God, we don't always get this stuff right. We don't always take responsibility when we muck up. We don't always step out and say, you know what, I actually share part of the blame. But God, this week I pray that we become aware of situations where we need to take responsibility. Maybe for some of us, Lord, it's some past pain. For some of us, it's just something which happens quite regularly that we need to stop making excuses for and start to say, you know what, actually, I'm part of the reason that happens. Give us the strength to do that. Give us the strength to take responsibility of whatever part of it needs to be that's ours. And Lord God, in regards to Satan, the devil and forces of evil, Lord, we don't always get this one right either. But I trust that you hold the final victory and that whatever evil is at work, that your good is at work and will overcome in the end. Of that I am certain. In your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.